0: Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, teaching pastor at Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith as well as our You Asked For It series, where we address your questions about trusting God's goodness as Father and living out His fullness as beloved sons and daughters. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at myoverflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional at amazon.com. question to you. How many of you had the opportunity before to go to the doctor and see the dreaded test that looks something like this? We'll put up on your screen. How many of you have had the opportunity, right? It's a little game you play at the doctor where you read as many letters as you can, and then you see how long you can guess correctly until they call you on your bluff, right? You're looking, you're like, that's a T, a dump truck. I'm not sure what's coming next. So I'm just wondering here in the room right now, how many people have some sort of, in order for you to see clearly like this, you have some sort of corrective lenses. So that would be glasses, contacts, laces, surgery. Just hold your hands up proudly. That's you. You have some type of corrective lens. OK, that's awesome. Anybody in the room have 20-20 vision? Like, actually, you've gone to a doctor. They say you have 20-20 vision. Wow, there's a few. Wow. I hear, some, I hear hatred coming from some people. <laughs> I got to ask this, because this is an actual thing. Does anybody have better than 20-20 vision that it shows? Look at that right there. So, Lesson for the day, these two, um, be on your best behavior around them, because they see everything, okay? <laughs> they will see everything that happens. So here's the deal. When you're looking at these tests, if you don't have your glasses on or your lenses, those of you who raised your hands, I just need to know, just so we know, if you didn't have your glasses on right now, how many of you would the eye chart look like this? Let's pull the second one up. How many of you say it looked like that? All right. I'm just seeing. That means moderately that you can kind of make the shape of some forms. I got to know in the room, is there anybody that if you didn't have your glasses on, the eye chart would look like? That. Be kind of like, right, okay. So, kind of like that's a Coke bottle, I see, I guess. That's what that is. So, I want to talk this morning about learning to see. About learning to see. And I want to look at the only progressive miracle that was ever recorded in the days of Jesus. And I hope as you're reading the Gospels, alongside uh, the rest of your overflow family, you're recognizing something. The Holy Spirit has inspired the scriptures in such an amazing way. Not just that it's true, but the way that he lays out the chapters of the Bible are very intentional. We're going to look today at Mark chapter 8, and what you're going to see is in the very center of Mark 8, there's this man who is blind that gets progressively healed by Jesus, meaning he comes and he finds Jesus, and he can't see anything, and then Jesus touches him, and it kind of looks like the, the, the far right side of that um, eye chart, and then he needs Jesus to touch him again and to move, and the reason that happens is before and after this story, there are three groups of people that Jesus meets that if we'd be honest We'd find ourselves in, and they're all three people that couldn't quite see. We'll pick up in Mark chapter 8. It starts at verse 1, and it says this. I'm sorry, actually, we're going to pick up in the middle of the chapter, Mark eight twenty two. It says, they came to Bethsaida, right here this story, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside. I just love that about Jesus, the way that he protects our dignity. He was not going to allow this to become a spectacle. This was all about this man and his need. It says, when he spit on the man's eyes, I guess that doesn't sound as dignified as before, but we're going to see what he's doing. It says he put his hands on him. Jesus said, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. So once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes Then his eyes were opened, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. As I said, this is the only progressive miracle that we read in the life of Jesus. And what you see is a man who was touched by God, but he can't yet see things clearly. I think there's a lot more going on there. Here's the big idea I want to give us today. We live in the moment of this story between the first and the final touch. We live in the moment between the first touch from Jesus and the final touch. See, all of us have some things that we can see clearly because God has moved, and that's everybody. He lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. Everybody has things about God, about life, about love, about people. They can see because God has drawn near and touched their eyes. But all of us have places we can't yet See. And this is a theme all throughout the Bible. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, now we only see as a reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And maybe you hear that and you go, wow, we see in a mirror. Here's the problem. Ancient mirrors weren't made of glass. They were made of steel. So when God says that you see in a mirror, ladies, it would be like you trying to put your makeup on looking into this. See, as you look into steel, you can see colors and shapes and dimensions, but it's kind of like a funhouse mirror, isn't it? Things get distorted. You can't see them quite clearly yet, and I need you to understand this. Paul says, the Apostle Paul, the author of most of the New Testament, he says, if I'm being honest, when I walk with Jesus, he saw Jesus. He was blinded on the road to Damascus. He said, On my best day, this is how clearly I see him. As believers, this is how we see God, others, and reality. It's it's foggy pots and funhouse mirrors. That's what we see. And now listen, this is what's true for believers. Before we come to Jesus, it says that we live in the dark, and the darkness can never overcome, so there are glimmers of light coming through. But you live in the dark just seeing shades of light, so when you go from the dark to suddenly seeing this, and it's gleaming, and it's bright, it's amazing, but we only see in part. It led him to continue on, and he said this. He said, all of us, this is 2 Corinthians 3.18, All of us with unveiled faces are contemplating the Lord's glory because we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I think one of the biggest problems that we face today in our culture, because we have a culture that a lot of times, this is in the church and out of the church. We've got a culture that is entitled and offended a whole lot of the time, and I think our core problem is a pride and an overconfidence of everything we think We see clearly. There's the sin of certainty. I see it clearly. I know it all. I've arrived. And it actually robs us from childlike faith, humility, and wonder. But know what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Listen, he says, no, we have unveiled faces. The veil in the temple has been ripped. What does that mean? There's no obstruction on God's part toward you. And guess what? Because he's so good, he's removed the obstruction that you're hiding behind too. He says there are no obstructions in Christ. However, you are presently being transformed. That word transformed, it's, it's metamorpho It's the same word we have in the transfiguration. It's where we get our word metamorphosis when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. And he says, listen, in Christ, if you're in Christ, anybody in the room in Christ? If you're in Christ... You're a new creation. You have a new heart. You have a new mind, a sound mind that is silencing the spirit of fear. And it's all true. And Christ did it all. You are now no longer the the caterpillar. You're the butterfly. But guess what? There are things in your sight that are still cocooned. You're being transformed. And so this life The rest of this life is a process of our souls catching up with the reality that already took place in our spirits. Let me say that again so you get it. The rest of our lives, Jesus did it. He removed the veil from me and from him. There are no obstructions. He adores me in all of my mess. There's nothing else I'm waiting for the cross to pay for for me. I've got the full ticket and it's here and I'm in eternal life now. That said there are still places I live like I'm cocooned because I see in part. I don't yet see him face to face. And so maturity in the Christian life means that for the rest of my journey, my soul, that's my feelings, my will, my emotions, all the things that typically drive our days if we're being honest, is in a process of catching up with the reality of who Christ says I am. And we will live like who we believe we are. We're learning to see. That led Paul finally to say this in Ephesians 1, and this is where I'm going to kind of anchor our thought this morning to start as we walk through. He gives this prayer, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order that you would know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe." He says, there are things that we see, and there are things we don't yet see, and the problem is we think we see things that we can't yet see. So what we desperately need is for our, light, our eyes to be enlightened. It literally means for light to shine on you and to shine through you, that Christ would come on you in a way that you would radiate out. I got to ask the question, is there anybody here that is between the first touch from Jesus and the final touch that would love today to see better. You would say, I want to see Jesus clearly. Four people in the room want to see Jesus clearly. So listen, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit, because the rest of the room, you see everything. So, no, I'm being sarcastic. Is there anybody in the room today that would say, I want the eyes of my spirit to be enlightened to see what I don't see. I want to live like who he says I am. Anybody in the room? Yay, there's the church. I'm going to ask you to put your hand on your heart with me. And we're going to pray this together. So Father God, I am asking right now alongside my friends that the eyes of our spirits would be enlightened. God, would you shine light on us today? You've already done it all. If we could see that it is gloriously good news. I'm asking today, even as we sit in this moment, that there would be a new way that we would know the hope to which you've called us. Come on, somebody, hand on your heart. Father, I want to know in a new way today that you've called me to hope. I don't want to walk under heaviness where you've called me to hope. Father, I ask today that there would be a new way that we would step in and understand the inheritance that you've purchased, that we wouldn't live like orphans scrounging for scraps when you've given it all. And Father, I pray that we would understand the incomparably great power that you have for those of us who believe. Father, would you open our eyes? If you agree with that, say amen. In Mark chapter eight, Jesus shows us three places we desperately need to see. The first one is this What do we need to see if we're going to follow Jesus and walk in the kingdom? It's this. You ready? Jesus is adamant about inviting the people we don't want at the table. Let me say that one again. What do we need to see if we're going to understand the gospel? Jesus is adamant about inviting the people we don't want at the table. Mark chapter eight starts with Jesus feeding the 4,000. He's in Gentile territory. And here's the deal. For any good Jewish person, for years and years and years and years, what they've been taught is that Gentiles were unworthy and dirty. They were the addicts. They were the sinners. They were the loose cannons. And now, as the disciples are going, Jesus is outside of Jewish territory with the Gentiles and what they don't expect happens. It's not the poster of, oh, they won't care because they're dirty. No, all of these Gentiles start gathering. When it says 4,000, that was 4,000 men. It was a male-dominated society, so they only counted the men. Thanks a lot. Um, But it was actually 10,000 people that would have been present. And 10,000 of these dirty, unclean people came, and they came and they stayed so long that they ran out of all of their food and all of their provisions except nobody was leaving. They were hanging on every word Jesus had to say. And so at this point, Jesus turns to the disciples. He says this, Mark 1, Mark 8, 1. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people, for they've already been with me three days and they have nothing to eat. Now we and the disciples didn't get the fact that he was talking about more than physical hunger. Jesus is crying out at this point. He's saying, here's the deal. I'm looking at this crowd. These people that you've learned are dirty and unworthy. And what I see is they're empty and they're starving for me. And I have compassion. I love that word in Mark 8, 1 and 2. Because compassion means to be moved at the deepest, most inner part of who you are in love and pity for someone that joins them in their misery. See, it's not warm sentiments, it's not a Hallmark card. When you have compassion, it's, no, I see you not as your caricature. I see you in your need, I see you in your want, and I have to move to do something. And so he continues. Mark 8, 6, it says, Jesus told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he'd taken the seven loaves, he gave thanks. He broke them, he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people, And they did so. Now, here's the deal. You've heard the feeding of the 5,000. You've heard the feeding of the 4,000. I don't need to go through all the details, but I want you to pay attention to the process. Look at what it says. Jesus thanked the Father. He broke the bread open. He gave it freely to his disciples to do what? To give it freely to the unclean people that they did not believe deserved a seat at the table. What's really interesting is when you look at all the Gospels, and you're going to see this in a few weeks when we finally get to the Gospel of John, at a feeding just like this, a miraculous feeding, Jesus spoke up in John 6 to say what he was actually doing, and this is what he said. Jesus spoke to the crowd saying, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. See, what was happening that day in the desert was not a miracle about lunch in a desert. But about fulfilling a longing in the deserts of our hearts. That's what Jesus was up to. See, the Gentiles were there, and it says at the end of this miracle, seven basketfuls were picked up, seven basketfuls were left over. Seven, of course, is the number of completion. It was seven days of creation of all people. And so he comes at the end and says, I'm coming so that all people, anyone can come and eat. And here's the deal. I've been broken open completely for all but here's our job if you follow Jesus. You ready? You've got to take, you've got to eat, and then you've got to wildly distribute to the furthest crowd possible. That's beautiful, except we have a problem. For all of us, we have some people that we don't want at the table. All of us have people we don't want at the table. We might not say it out loud, but we believe they're unworthy or they're disqualified. We've been taught that flesh and blood is not our enemy, but we all, come on, if we're being honest, we all have people that it's hard to extend grace to. We're offended with them, and we're defensive toward them. And I've seen this show up two ways in our lives. We have groups of people, what I would call positions, that we don't want at the table. That would be stances. That would be groups and things that they stand for. And then we also have actual people who have hurt us, a family member, a coworker, a friend. And this problem of us not wanting everybody at the table, it happens in every persuasion, in every denomination, in every affiliation. It doesn't matter whether you're conservative or liberal. I want to say this, whatever value system is present with the people you share life with, and you have one, your people, the people that you go, I get around these people and it's just home, you have a value system of some things you really love and you really honor, and you all have a value system of some things that you don't want certain people at the table because they keep offending it and breaking the rules. Come on, is that fair? See, all of us bristle at the idea of certain people being invited to the table. For some. Some of you right now, if you'd be honest, you'd say, I have a hard time with those who distort truth and abuse grace. If you're looking at the people, you'd have a hard time coming. It would be those in the stances and positions of tolerance. Those that you look at and say, what they do in our culture is moral compromise. And if I want to go with a broad brush stroke, where do we see this most? We see offense coming in the name of things like abortion sexuality, sexual identity, and erosion from traditional family values. There are people that look and say, I see that, and when I see people do that, and I see the agenda, at times it's very hard for me to separate an agenda from people I don't want at the table, and I get defensive. And if that's you, though we don't tend to say it, we tend to see these people as guilty, and we have little patience or grace for them, and when we talk in our groups, we speak as if we're above them. We deserve a spot at the table. They don't. On the other side of the equation, some people have a hard time with people who are rigid and judgmental and show no mercy. If you want to know what that looks like with positions, you'll hear people having a problem with positions of fundamentalism. That's people that would have an obsession with barking rules at everyone while doing little to be with the broken. They're talking rules all the time. This is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to line up. This is the way it's supposed to look. But you're not actually watching them in the midst of broken people helping them. And though we don't say it. See, the first group I said, we see them as guilty, right? Here's the deal, and I've watched this from people that just want the mercy of Jesus. We tend to see the fundamentalists as if they're godless. As if he doesn't actually exist within them at all. And just like the other group, we speak with little patience and little grace as if we're above them. And I wanna tell us today that wherever you come, both of those are extremes of an orphan mindset sent by the enemy to get us to dehumanize one another. That we would remove our faces and dilute us down to stances. That we would put everybody in a category, a generic stance so that we can say, I'm more worthy. Now if it were just that, that'd be pretty bad. Our problem was just that we had positions of people. And can we just be honest? Can we just be real here? Do we have positions of people that we have a hard time with that group? Anybody? The same four people that we're hungry for seeing. Okay. We have it, right? We do it. I'm preaching to me here. That's only the tip of the iceberg. Because if we're really being honest, it's not just positions we have a problem with. All of us have certain people that have a name and have a face and have a history with us. And because of what they've done in our lives, we have a hard time knowing that God would choose them as a favorite and have a seat at the table. They're the people that we struggle to forgive, the people that judged me, the people that stole from me, the people who gossiped about me, the people who mistreated me, the people who ignored me. Let me go one step further. In fact, I'm going to say the most pernicious type of offense isn't an offense when somebody hurts you, but when somebody hurts somebody you love. You know what I'm talking about? The offense in the name of others. By the way, I want to tell you this. When you get offended for somebody else and you hold on to it, you think what you're doing is holy, but what you're actually doing is playing God. It's demonic. Because what you're doing is you're saying, I saw it, and I am their defender, and I will not rest until justice is served. Meaning, you think, I don't need any bread to eat. I'm the bread that can be broken open. It's playing God. We have people we don't want at the table. But here's the problem. Jesus came to be broken so that anyone could come to the table. In just a minute, I'm going to ask where it's time to lay down a stone that you're holding in your hand at a group of people or a person and where it's time to soften the stone that you might have in your heart. <laughs> Jesus came because he's adamant about inviting people to the table that you don't want there. The second place that Jesus wants us to have eyes to see Jesus wants us to see that many of our religious debates miss the point of the gospel and our participation in it. Jesus wants us to see that many of our religious debates, what am I saying, many of the things we talk about in church, many of the places we talk about Jesus in spiritual life, that much of it is missing the point of the gospel and simultaneously missing our participation in it. We continue on the story. Jesus feeds the five thousand and the the four thousand. And the instant this grand miracle is over, the God squad's waiting outside to question and interrogate him. It says that they waited and they demanded a sign. I want to tell you something. There are some people in your life who will always be waiting to find fault with what you're doing by trying to run your course. And by the way, they normally show up right after a grand act of your obedience that all of heaven is celebrating to take your eyes off of your obedience and to make you miserable, and we've got to stop letting them do that. They show up, and they accuse, and I love this. What what gets me about this whole thing, let's look at what it says. Verse 11, it says, The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. That's ironic already. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. And Jesus sighed deeply. (laughs) I feel you, Jesus, right? Like, cue facepalm. Because here's the deal if you would have counted women and children, like I just said, what just happened was Jesus took seven loaves of bread and fed 10,000 people. And he walks out and they're like, give us a sign. I'd be like, make your own bread, right? I don't, like, what is your problem? You wanna see a sign? Here's what gets me about that. These people that were questioning him were God's representatives on earth. If we take it to a modern context, it's not just the church people. It's the pastors and the missionaries that are waiting and holding the Inquisition. They took no part in distributing the bread. They were feeding no one. And yet they felt justified to stand on the outside and hurl religious grenades at the Son of God to test and see if he's really from God. That's insane. Except we do it all the time. To God and to each other. We live in the age of opinion. And in this age we have this unspoken rule from every side of creation it seems that everyone is constantly pressured to share every stance about everything so that we can categorize everyone. Can I remind us that when you look in the New Testament for the word accuser, the word in Greek is kategoreo. The accuser is the categorizer. He's the one that obsesses to put us in boxes to determine our worthiness. What did Jesus want us to see? that much of our talking about God and much of our religious debates of the ins and outs and the rights and the wrongs miss both the point of the gospel and our participation with it. It is interrogation without incarnation. You want to know the difference? You want to know, am I walking in a way that looks like we're preserving life? Am I walking as salt and light, or am I just making noise? Well, here's one of the places I can give you a difference. Can we pull up that slide? I want to show you the difference between man-made religion and following Jesus. Here it is. Man-made religion is obsessed to test orthodoxy to assign you to a category. I'm going to ask you all kinds of questions. I need to know what you believe because i got to figure out, not just are you a Christian, but are you a Lutheran, are you a Baptist, are you a charismatic? Because what I'm doing is I'm putting you on a scale of how crazy or how acceptable to God you are. I'm going to test your orthodoxy. Listen, following Jesus doesn't want to play that game. Following Jesus instead feeds hunger to reveal a father says, I'm not really interested in categorizing you. I'm interested in feeding you because all of the human race is starving. Me too. I've eaten, and I'm going to show you where to find some bread. Man-made religion. Debates to judge people's worthiness. But on the flip side, following Jesus, it doesn't debate. No, it incarnates to join them in their want. Comes and says, I'm not really going to talk about where you are on the scale. What I'm going to do is come first and say, as Paul said, Christ came to save sinners of which I was the worst. So I'm just going to come and join you in the midst of your mess and your need. Man-made religion constructs and guards walls to keep people out. Ah, but following Jesus climbs and demolishes walls to bring people in. Man-made religion is obsessed with the appearance of morality. One of the things you're going to hear around man-made religion all the time is, make sure you live above reproach you got to live above reproach. You're going to hear all about living above reproach, that everything you got to do, it's got to have the appearance that everybody would look and everybody would know that it's okay and that really most times it means that it would fit our crew and our crowd, that the people in your church would look and go, oh, yeah, they believe all the things I believe. Check, they're in the same category I'm in. Check, be above reproach. I want to say this. I believe wholeheartedly in living above reproach, but if you're going to follow Jesus, then you're going to live in such a way that many people are going to reproach you. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to look like Jesus, there are many times when you're going to let somebody in that people think are too far from grace. And I want to tell you, the only times I've ever gotten in trouble in my ministry, and I can say, I'm so happy about this, the only time I've ever gotten in trouble is I've said the grace of God is too big and too... That's what I get in trouble for. I get in trouble because people say, I think that you're making a scandalous identification with those people that are far from God, and I'm like, that's because I am! I am! He came to be broken for all. So I want to tell you this, listen, man-made religion obsesses over the appearance of morality, but following Jesus obsesses with embodying the substance of love. I don't care where you categorize me. I'm going to be with the people that are broken, which is all of us. You know, the sad thing is way too many days I do care how people identify me. That's why I stopped there for a minute. As I say, Lord, let that be my prayer, that I would live in such a way that I don't care where you identify me or where you think I stand, but I'm going to tell you the way my life is leaning these days is I'm willing to be misunderstood. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Man-made religion uses holy books as a dagger to wound. We show up with our scriptures and we say, here's all the things you did wrong, and here's what God says, and there's warning, and there's judgment, and there's fear, but following Jesus applies the word of God as a scalpel to heal. And most significantly, man made religion talks constantly but rarely moves. Following Jesus moves in compassion and only talks when it's actually helpful. So they came and they questioned him, and it says that Jesus sighed deeply. I love the parallel in this because you remember that word compassion I talked about just a minute ago? The word compassion means to be moved at the deepest part of who you are so that you're moved to act. Did you know that this is the the other counterpart of that? To sigh deeply is to be moved at the deepest part of who you are in grief and frustration. So in back-to-back, Jesus is with one. He sees the broken, the people that we go, got to watch out for them, be above reproach. And he says, I'm just moved in compassion. I don't care how you see me. I'm running after them. He gets around the church people and it says that he's moved in the depth of frustration and grief. Because they'd forgotten who they were called to be. There's this book that I read recently called The Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind. It's actually a true story. And it follows this woman who, according to the title, is a neuroscientist. Her name's Barbara Lipska. And she was battling a brain tumor. This is about 10 years ago. that began to affect her entire identity. And what's amazing about Barbara's story is the whole thing started with her vision it says that she was going about her day and all of a sudden the entire right uh, lower quadrant of her sight disappeared she couldn't see anything here she could see all around here but this was gone something went wrong with her vision she went to the doctor and she found out sure enough she had several brain tumors and so they began to treat them aggressively and for a time it seemed like they said barbara you've gotten the care you're there you've taken the treatments things look good a few days passed, a few weeks passed, and suddenly Barbara's attitude radically changed. This sweet woman suddenly became impatient and judgmental and bitter. Her family thought that it was just the stress of the treatment, and so what they actually said was, we'll just be quiet, we'll just wait, because, I mean, goodness gracious, going through that, we're going to cut her some slack, right? We would do the same thing. And so they continued on, but it was a little bit longer, and Barbara's actions became erratic. She was a runner, and so regularly she took care of her health. And one morning, she got up by herself and decided it was time to dye her hair purple. And she began to dye her hair. And midway through, with the cap and the dye still in, she suddenly decided it was a great time to go for a jog. And she began to go for a jog and was several miles away from home when suddenly she lost all of her bearings and completely forgot where she was. And these types of scenes of her completely forgetting everything about where she was in a single instant scared them. They couldn't find answers. Finally, where it went for Barbara is it it went first from her attitude, then to her actions, and finally, it ended this place of downright accusation. Barbara became wild with conspiracy theories about everything, that the restaurant was poisoning them, that the doctors were all greedy and lying, that her family had turned against her. And finally, she got to the doctors and got an answer. They found out that there was an inflammation that had been pushing on her brain in in the sector of her perceptions, and her emotions and affecting everything. Now, in Barbara's story, what's awesome is she made a full recovery and she's in remission, but here's the crazy thing about her story, and it's what I loved about this book, is Barbara recalls the entire incident of losing her mind from the inside as she felt then, and she did not feel like she was going crazy. She felt like she saw everything correctly and that the rest of the world were are losing their minds, that the world, her family, her doctors, they'd all turned against her. And she continued high-functioning. Barbara continued in her job. She continued to live in her home as a mom and a wife. She was living in the house. So what's the point? I think there are many church-going issues voting Christians who are suffering from an inflamed brain. We're living in the house and highly functioning in all the things that we've done, but the signs are everywhere that we've forgotten who and whose we are. And if you want evidence, if you hear that and you think immediately, like, oh, man, so-and-so really needs to hear that, that might be the first evidence that you really need Jesus to touch your eyes <laughs> and to help you see. Because the problem in the world is not the brokenness in them. Let me say that again loudly. The problem in the world is not the brokenness in them. Y'all, it's the brokenness in us. Christians, can I remind us that we're part of the human race, which means we're part of the problem? We've got to stop this paternalistic, I've accepted Jesus, and so now I have the answers. No, Jesus is the answer, broken open for all people, and you need to eat of him constantly. You need to come before him constantly. The problem is not brokenness out there. It's brokenness in here, starting with the guy that walks around in my skin. Starting with the guy who has an inflamed brain sometimes that lives in my house. And this is what I want to say. If we're going to talk about the gospel, we have all kinds of debates and talks that we go through. If we're going to talk about the gospel, listen, you can't distribute broken bread until you eat it yourself and you're willing to live broken. We will never see the point of the gospel if we fail to participate in it. Last thing that Jesus came to help us say. First one, Jesus wants us to see where we're blind is that he wants to invite people to the table that we don't think are worthy. The second one, he wants to look and say, I'm tired of your Christian talk, of all the things you stand for in your stances, in your boxes, because much of our debate misses the point and participation in the gospel. But the last one is this, you ready? The gospel is free, and yet it costs everything. What does he want Christians to see today? The gospel is free And yet costs us everything. He ends this passage with this. It says, Jesus and the disciples, so now they've healed this man, they're continuing on. It says they went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say you're John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still other one of the prophets. What about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. (laughs) Who do you say I am? I will tell you, in all of our lives, that's the most important question God will ever ask us. And Peter, to his credit, gets it right. Peter sees. Yay! (laughs) He says, you're the Messiah. What does that mean? You're the anointed one. You remember, in just a few days, he's going to step into Gethsemane, the oil press. He says, you're the one that is going to be pressed and crushed so that we can walk in anointing forever and evermore. God, I believe In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, you see, and if only we could roll the credits, and that was the end of the story, but Jesus had to keep talking, and unfortunately, so did Peter. It says, Jesus then began to teach them, now that they said, we believe the gospel, we believe you're the anointed one, so now listen, Jesus is saying, then what's the anointed path? If I'm anointed and you're going to be anointed, where are we going together? says, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about all of this. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Darn, it was going so good for Peter and the disciples and us. We were starting to see. And then Jesus said that the path ahead is this. What is the path of following me? What's the path of the cross? He said it's this. The path is you're going to suffer. And you're going to be rejected usually by those people in your culture Who are respected. And in many ways, in your reputation, in your emotions, maybe even in your body, you're going to be put to death. And at this, Peter began to rebuke him. The word in Greek literally means to chide, to give severe disapproval, or to sharply correct. I just want to give you a note. If you're ever in a conversation with Jesus and you start chiding Jesus, um, it's probably something you're failing to see. It's probably you. And we could be hard on Peter, but this is what you need to get that really matters for the moment that we're in right now. Please don't miss this. Peter was only reflecting the theology that had been handed to him. You see, for hundreds of years, what had been taught in the temple was an expectation of a warlike Messiah who would squash Rome and put Israel back on top. They had only ever seen victory through violence, they had no concept of a suffering Savior who conquers by laying down his life in love for his enemies to set them free from their violence. I want to tell you my heart breaks when once again we get up in the morning and we get another story of another shooting and another senseless tragedy. And I want to tell you, we don't cast out the kingdom of Satan by Satan. I'm not making a political stance here on whether you should own guns or not. Many of our religious debates are meaningless. Go back and rewind and listen to that part of the message again. What I'm saying is this. This violence that we want to go to and say, we're only going to conquer through violence. They're the bad guys. Now we want to scapegoat this person who went in and shot people up instead of going, no, maybe if I look in the mirror, there's things that that come in lunacy that look like me too. Maybe I could stop scapegoating people, right? And that gets uncomfortable. We want to get to these things with right, what's going on in the Ukraine, and we want to pick the sides. We want to go, oh, well, Vladimir Putin, he's the problem, so now we can just kick him to the curb, but I'm sorry, when we come to it, it's humanity, it's us. You have no enemy of flesh and blood. Violence doesn't drive out violence, only love can do that. Amen. They had no concept for this. So when Peter shows up and says, no, it won't be so, Peter thinks what he's doing is speaking a great word of love. Do you know how many prophetic words we give that sound so great and so wonderful and so flowery, even to the point of sometimes you'll hear people say, nobody will ever give you a prophetic word that sounds difficult. I'm like, read the Bible. (laughs) A word for your encouragement, it means to get your courage back, to get your spine back. Sometimes when you have to be given a word to get your spine back, it sounds like correction. Sometimes it's hard to hear, but it's Love. Peter didn't know what to do. Peter thought what he was saying was right. But when Jesus turns to Peter and calls him Satan, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is not being sarcastic. He's being sharp on purpose. There's not a higher thing Jesus could say to Peter in this moment, and you will never hear Jesus do this again. Jesus, to his own disciple, to the rock, to the center disciple, calls him Satan. Not a good church-building strategy. Why? Because he said, you need to understand something right now. What you're doing is you're deifying human concerns. You're spiritualizing human concerns. You're lifting up a human gospel of your best life now. And what you need to understand is where that comes from is not my father, but from the accuser, the father of lies. The reason I call you Satan is what you just said Avoiding pain, avoiding suffering. Listen, because there were two things that Peter actually wanted following Jesus to look like. You ready? The two things he wanted. One, he wanted to squash his enemies. Peter had enemies. Peter had pain. Peter had lots of people and lots of oppressors that came around, people he loved. He watched people that he loved get killed by ruthless Roman oppressors. And what Peter wanted when Jesus came into town was, all right, Jesus, go get them. He said, the path that I'm going on is not one of squashing my enemies. It's one of being squashed for them. The second one, Peter wanted to rule. The number of times the disciples show up and and say, we want to be great. We want to sit on your throne. What they're talking about is not like, oh, we want to be the first to go on the mission trip. It's not what they're saying. What they're saying in that moment is, no, we're going to be great, and we're going to be powerful, and we're going to get all the things, and all the enemies are going to have to listen to us, and everybody bows to us, and I want to be number one. What Peter wanted was comfort An abundance. And what Jesus said, the kingdom of God was this. You ready? I've come to be broken, and if you're going to follow me, you have to be broken too. The entire gospel is the Via Dolorosa. It's a road of death and self-emptying love. And so I want to end here, because Jesus had just one more thing to say to the disciples, and this is the one we need to see the most. He says this, he called the crowd to him, and along with the disciples he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Three phrases that he gives. They're so important, I want you to get them if you could pull up the next slide. What do they mean? Deny yourself, it means this, you ready? Anybody in the room wanna be Jesus' disciple? Anybody in the room wanna follow him everywhere? Here's the deal, this is what he says. You wanna be my disciple, here it is, you ready? Forget yourself. Break acquaintance in connection with your own dreams and your own interests and your own feelings and your own life and your own way. Man, that'll get you crucified in the Church of America. He continues You want to be my disciple? Take up your cross. Be willing to receive cruel punishment. Intended to publicly humiliate and disgrace you. By the way, if anybody has a problem with this, it's just straight out of the Greek that's in the New Testament. Take it up with Jesus. The last one if you want to be my disciple, make my road first. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Deny yourself, what's he saying? Don't live for your own feelings. Don't live for your own dreams. Don't live for your own path. Don't live for your own way. Break up with that worldview. And make Jesus alone your treasure. Now, I want to say to somebody in the room, there's a huge difference between using Jesus to get to some other dream, which, by the way, is much of what the American church has preached, I'm sad to say, and losing you completely to know Jesus only to find that he is birthing new dreams in you of the places you can go together. When I tell you to deny yourself, I'm not saying just go through life like a cloud, like, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know what's happening anymore. He says, no, put to death your low way for your life and adopt my highway for mine. If you get to the place where you actually come and say, Jesus, I want to follow you, this is what I want every person hearing my voice to know, God made you distinct unlike any other person that he's ever created in all of existence because he has a specific blueprint for how you reflect the Father on earth. Isn't that good? So listen, when you duck to your low way of living and come to him, you're going to lay your head on your pillow and you're going to wake up and you're going to start having dreams of the places that you can go with him. He's not saying don't have a dream. He's saying get mine, not yours. See, it's all about the goal. It's not about my glory. It's not about I get this and so then I'll be enough. It's no, Jesus, you are all I will ever need. It's about whose dream you're living. Second, you want to follow Jesus? Take up your cross. What does it mean? Here, this is probably the hardest message I could give in America because we so much just want to be loved all the time. You want to follow Jesus. Open yourself up to misunderstanding, mistreatment, cruelty, and the anger of hostile people so you can carry Jesus' love to them. Pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Don't get offended and cry foul. Don't play the victim. Do you know how much victimization we have in my own own prayer life? Do you know how often I sound like the victim to Jesus? Oh, they don't like me. They weren't talking nice to me. And he's like, hey, did, did you deny yourself? Or is what you're trying to hold on to, you keep trying to resurrect your dreams for your life of having a reputation in the here and now with people that are respected instead of you emptying yourself so that you can actually feed broken people? I've been broken. You have to be broken too. Don't be a victim. Rejoice. And trust Jesus to lead you protect you. Listen, the gospel is free, but it costs everything. And finally, he says, what do you do? You take my road as the only road for your life. And I want to close saying this, guys, until we do that, we will live our entire lives clinging to our stuff and our rights and our standing, maybe even worse. We'll come into church services like this and spiritualize all the songs we sing and all the scriptures we read to say that Jesus is actually going to reinforce. If I just follow the rules, He's going to give me that. I can't tell you how many people have walked away from an active relationship in the faith because what they wanted was a consumer God. They wanted to put me on a throne, make me first, and they never understood that what was being taught to them in churches was the theology of Satan. Until we take His road, we will be angry, we will be offended. And we'll be restless because we're trying to feed ourselves from empty baskets that will never satisfy. But if we'd stop for just a minute, we'd remember that right now, wherever you're going, you and I are standing just like a blind man in the middle of a road, somewhere between the first touch and the final touch. See, all of us right now have things that we have seen and experienced where God has been good. Have you seen God be good in your life? Have you seen love be beautiful and joy and a lot to rejoice in the land of the living to keep breathing and know, man, he's good and mercy and goodness are gonna follow me all the days of my life. All of us have gotten the first touch to be able to see, but listen, all of us have things that we cannot see yet. And he's standing on the road. If you'd have eyes to see it this morning with his hands outstretched toward your spiritual eyes saying, if you'd just take a step closer, I'd like to help you see. Would you stand with me? This morning, as we go into a time of ministry, I want to ask three questions. I'm going to ask before me if you would just close your eyes. And I'm going to work in reverse order because I think it goes from the most important place we could go. For somebody this morning, for somebody this morning, it's time to step out. You've been living for you. If you're being honest, you've been following the rules so that you would get some other treasure. You might have the most moral life. You might memorize scriptures. You might listen to praise songs as you go in. But if you're being honest right now, you'd say, my life is mostly about me. And I've, I bought the pill, man, that, that what it was supposed to be was I go live my best life now. And I'm hearing that the gospel is something different. And I'm ready to deny myself. I'm ready to take up a cross. I'm ready to follow. Listen, I want you to hear me very clearly what I'm saying. This first group that I'm talking about, you may be a Christian, and you may have walked with Jesus a long time. You may have pastor at the beginning of your title, but right now in this moment you're saying, Too much of my journey is about me seeking me, and when people do wrong to me, me playing the victim, and I'm ready, God has something for me, that there's a place I've gotta step out. The very first thing I heard for us is some of us need to step out today, and I see that as an actual, physical step. So this is what I'm gonna ask if that's you. I'm gonna ask you to step out and come to the altar, and you're gonna see two places you can stand at the altar. One, we've got prayer ministers waiting for you because for some of you, you've got to step out and you say, I'm stepping out, but I'm terrified and I don't know what comes next and I need somebody to pray with me in agreement. Some of you are stepping out and you need a moment with just you and Jesus. And so you'll see space between the prayer ministers. If God's called you to just come out and have a moment with him at the altar because the point is you stepping out, you come all the way up to the altar. If God's calling you to step out because you need somebody to pray with you, come straight to one of these prayer ministers. But somebody in the room, God's saying, Too much of your life's been about you. Too much of it's been about your dreams. What needs to happen right now is it's time to forget yourself. It's time to stop judging God because he didn't give you X, Y, Z and actually lay down the pursuit of it altogether. If that's you, I'm gonna ask you to come now. If that's you, I'm gonna ask you to come now. If God said it's time to step out, it's time to take a step, this step is for you and I'm asking that as you obey that something take place in your spiritual being. I'm asking that the eyes of your spirit are enlightened. If that's you, step out now. I'm gonna give just a minute here. God says I've been living for me. I've been going my own way. I've been worshiping my own feelings and what makes sense to me. I've been thinking breakthrough is when Jesus gives me fill in the blank. And I'm done with that. Jesus, you alone are my treasure and I'll join you even if the road means suffering. If that's you, I'm gonna ask you to step out. Never want to miss the opportunity, whether you've stepped out or you haven't, if you're at the place where it's a first time in your life and you say, I know that I know that I know that I don't know if I'm following Jesus. I don't know if I've crossed the line and I want to know it today. I want to step out for the first time in faith. I just don't want to miss this moment. If you're in the room, if you're hearing me online, you would just online, you would just type, that's me and we're going to come around and pray for you. But if you're in the room and you say, I don't know that I'm following Jesus, but I want to make that step of faith. I'm going to ask that from wherever you're at you would just lift both hands over your head which is the international sign of surrender and you just be like here I am and I'm just going to ask that you would just hold them there because I just want to pray for you if that's you thank you Jesus thank you Lord would you just right there if that's you say Jesus I don't want to live for me anymore come on whether you're here at the altar or whether that's you you'd say Jesus I don't know how but I'm choosing right now to deny myself you're the treasure I want to live for I want you I want to follow you Would you teach me how to lay down my dreams my way and understand that your way is better, that you have dreams for me and you have plans for me and I want them, I believe that you're good. Jesus, I just want you and I bring all of me as broken as I feel, would you come and take over? I wanna tell you with confidence if you've prayed that, you are his forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Come on that first charge, if that's you, and I'm gonna ask you to continue coming. If at any point I mention you, you come to the altar. Second charge is this. For some, you're convicted of a place this morning that your spiritual walk has been all about talk but not action. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Jesus is convicting you right now that you talk a lot about your opinions and your convictions and your judgment, but there's too much interrogation and not enough incarnation. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to boldly step out and come to the altar the same way. Come to one of these ministers, come to the altar because you're coming and laying it down. Jesus, I'm done talking. I'm going to start moving. This is a message all about being moved with compassion. I pray if that's you, even now if that's you, I've been about my opinions, I've been talking but I've been comfortable and Jesus is calling me out. Would you be moved with compassion and come now to the altar? Would you come now? I don't want to just talk. I don't want to just talk. I want to carry the gospel to broken people. I sense there's somebody here that maybe it's not judgment, but you just feel too much of your life has been passive. So please hear me. I think there's somebody here that you think too much of your life has been passive. Too much of your life has just been reflecting. Maybe you don't walk into any judgment at all, but you know that God is saying today, it's time to go. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to come. I'm going to ask you to step up. If God's saying, there's a place where you're supposed to live in a bolder way going to broken people, I'm going to ask you to come. No more talk. No more waiting. No more opinion. Step into action. Last charge. There are some of us that are struggling with Jesus extending a seat to somebody at the table that has really hurt us. So I want you to hear me, you're hurt or you're offended or you're wrestling with somebody that has a position or a stance. They belong to a community of of tolerance or fundamentalism. You have a group of people or a person that you're wrestling with right now. I'm going to ask you to come to the altar. And this is what I'm gonna ask when you come. I'm gonna ask you to pray for you And to pray for them. I'm going to ask you to pray for you and to pray for them. That you would come forward and say, Jesus, I'm struggling right now with this group of people. This is how I've judged them. This is what they don't see I so desperately want them to see. But sometimes, by the way, and let me just say this one last word. There's a group of people that I walk with a lot in a very diverse group in the kingdom. And one part of that diverse group in the kingdom, they get really mad at fundamentalism. They really hate fundamentalism. And what I find sometimes is we get together and we get frustrated about how frustrated we are at fundamentalism, and then we're judging them and setting our own set of fundamentals. If God's telling you there's a group of people you're viewing on the outside, I'm gonna ask you as an act of faith to step up, to pray for you, and to pray for them. Jesus, you've been broken open so we can eat. Jesus, you have been so kind to us and so good. You have touched our eyes that we can see you, but there's so much we can't see. I'm gonna ask every person in the room, just hand on your heart. Jesus, would you help me see? I wanna see. Jesus, I wanna see you. Jesus, I wanna see you. Jesus, I wanna see you. Would you show me how to embody your love?
1: afraid of rejection and so we're afraid to go into the places God has called us to but I saw a billow of smoke coming into the the spirit of people just like a the first place of God igniting a fire in them and there's smoke and what that needs is oxygen to move and you carry the breath of God in you and you haven't gone to those people because you're afraid of rejection and i want you to look at it a different way today as you go into places where god is calling you to lay down your fears luke ten sixteen says the one who hears you hears me and the one who rejects you rejects me and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me when you understand that you go as a carrier of the gospel and that if someone rejects you they reject the one who sent you then what you feel when they reject you is grief because they missed it and you want them so badly to get it it's different you don't have to be afraid of this rejection of carrying the gospel my friends you do not have to be afraid but you will grieve for them and your heart needs to be ready for that to grieve for the lost and the broken don't be afraid of that grief let it carry you let it carry you because the rejoicing is much greater than the lament and the grief i promise you that so i just want to bless you with this prayer if you have struggled with rejection is that and that has kept you from carrying the gospel to people i just want you to raise your hand i want you to raise your hand Thank you, Jesus. We break the yoke of rejection. We reject the spirit of rejection over your people, and we release a new fire upon them in Jesus' name, that they will be carriers of your breath of life that will open the doors of hearts of people, that fire will breathe as soon as oxygen hits it. Fire will come to them in Jesus' name. Open the doors of their hearts right now, those who have raised their hand in Jesus' name, and let this breath of life breathe fire to them in Jesus' name. We thank you, Father, for the work that you're doing here, and we send your carriers of the gospel out afresh today in Jesus' name into their community, amen.